Since the sexual revolution, women's lives have undergone dramatic changes. The dominant narrative is that liberal feminism has freed women in profound ways. So why does the data show that women's happiness has actually declined? I think that basically what's happened post-sexual revolution in all in pursuit of freedom is that women have tried quite hard to nudge themselves up towards the male bell curve and to imitate that masculine style of sexuality that Carrie Bradshaw so aspires to. And I think that actually the, the losers from that have overwhelmingly been women. My guest on the program today argues that the sexual revolution has, in fact, failed women. Louise Perry is a British writer and activist. She's a columnist at The New Statesman and a features writer for The Daily Mail. Her brilliant debut is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. I'm thrilled to have Louise Perry as my guest today on Lean Out. Louise, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you so much for having me. Hello. It's wonderful to have you on. Lots to talk about today. I want to start with a statement that your grandmother made when you told her the thesis of this book. (laughs) She said... I know what's coming. (laughs) Yeah. She said women have been conned. I I have to say I I kind of agree. Let's talk about the big picture here first. Mm -hmm. When you look at the state of women's lives as compared to 60 years ago before the sexual revolution, what do you see? I see improvement, but not across the board by any means. I mean, this is something that's puzzled sociologists actually for a long time. The fact that tracking women's life satisfaction, happiness rates, et cetera, over the last half century or more, there's actually not been any improvement. There's actually been a dip in women's self-reported life satisfaction, which does seem very strange, doesn't it? Given that the amazing changes that we've seen in terms of women having so much more control over their own lives and and participation in public life and and in the workplace and so on, you would expect there to be a very clear, good result in terms of how happy we are on average. And you don't see that. And the piece of the puzzle that I'm engaging with in my book is to do with sexual relationships. And the sort of popular narrative that I'm writing against is the idea that as we've got more and more freedom over time and we've been able to explore our sexuality more and express ourselves more freely and have control over our reproductive lives that we didn't used to have, that this has been an obvious good for women. And the argument I'm making is that actually, I think that the real beneficiaries have been a subset of men, very often at women's expense. I do want to get to thesis. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to get to that class of men shortly. But but first, I mean, you are a feminist. I certainly started out as a feminist, although I'm not sure at this point. What role do you think liberal feminism has played in this, you know, so-called conning of women? So I mean, I'd start by saying that it's not a conspiracy. I don't think that anyone has sat down in a darkened room and designed any of this. I think it's I think it's a lot of it is just to do with historical accident and people making decisions at an individual level that makes sense to them, but doing so within a context which has much broader ramifications. So yeah, the thing is with liberal feminism, which is just an iteration of liberalism, <laughs> which is one of the reasons I decided to call it to, to describe it in that way, mm. even though most liberal feminists would probably call themselves intersectional feminists nowadays, 
or various other terms down kind of down the decades but i think liberal feminism describes it best because i think that the the key project is to do with freedom and the idea that we used to be constrained by all sorts of social and material forces and that the project before us is to undo them step by step i think that that is a flawed project i think it's not because freedom is a bad thing but because freedom has to be balanced against other virtues and the way that liberal feminism has often conceived its project is to do with us being more and more like men mm-hmm. seeing seeing masculinity as the ideal for which we need to strive which kind of makes sense in some contexts like in the workplace for instance you might say it was i think that it was absurd that women used to be restricted from becoming doctors let's say or becoming lawyers or you know being formally denied access to the professions on the basis of our sex was a role which was right now a long time ago so in that context it makes sense for us to strive towards access to masculine spheres which were otherwise excluded from but the problem that i think we're 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 coming up against now is that there are some fundamental differences between men and women some of which are absolute differences like the fact that only women can get pregnant and some of which are average physical differences like the fact that women are smaller and weaker than men are on average i say on average but the difference is massive it's very rare to have individual exceptions and then some of them are psychological differences which are much more controversial so for instance the fact that men like casual sex a lot more than women do on average that's a really profound difference between the sexes and it's quite a hard one to overcome and i think that the problem with liberal feminism is that it ends up you know once you've got the easier wins once you've got for instance women are allowed to vote or allowed access to certain professions all that kind of stuff all that kind of good stuff that we've already achieved if you keep pushing and pushing at this idea of sameness and uh, the idea that women should be as much like possible as possible like men you eventually hit the buffers because you come up against some biological differences that are not going away and i think that that's what we've seen with post-sexual revolution sexual culture which has all been about destigmatizing masculine modes of sexuality in women right so that women should be allowed to do all the things that men have historically enjoyed doing like buying sex and watching porn and having casual sexual relationships and stuff that the goal is for us to behave like men in the bedroom as well as in the boardroom i write in one point in the book about the first episode of sex in the city which is like you know the bible of liberal feminism where carry the protagonist has a hook up with an ex-boyfriend who she doesn't she doesn't even like you know has no no respect for let alone love for and is deliberately selfish in bed and then as she's leaving she said i felt so alive i felt like a man this was just this like great accomplishment and i think that the the problem with that project is that actually when it comes down to it i mean things like casual sex have so many more um negative consequences for women on the physical level i mean women are the ones who get pregnant if they don't, if they don't, if they don't if they don't want to get pregnant from a sexual encounter they're the ones who bear the consequences of it women suffer so much more risk of physical violence than men just based on the fact that we're smaller these these are things that never happen in sex in the city amazingly the the protagonists have so many hookups with so many dozens hundreds of men across the series and you never see anything like that come from it even though we know in reality just talking to women we know we know that that stuff happens all the time and also the fact that women actually want that <laughs> they want all of that stuff less on average you know there are obviously exceptions but 
psychologists talk about this trait called um, sociosexuality, which is slightly different actually from sex drive. This is misconception. It's not to do with how much how much you want to have sex. It's to do with who you want to have sex with. So people who are high in this trait are more likely to want to have lots of partners and to be much more adventurous sexually. And they find monogamy much more difficult. And people low in it are much more orientated towards monogamy and they prefer to know someone for a long time before they have sex and things like that. And these are two bell curves for men and women. And you see people at both extremes in both sexes and you can't necessarily know just from knowing someone's sex, you know, what their sexuality is like. But the bell curves have like a big gap between them. And across the population, that has a really big effect. And I think that basically what's happened post-sexual revolution in all in pursuit of freedom is that women have tried quite hard to nudge themselves up towards the male bell curve, you know, and to and to imitate that masculine style of sexuality that Carrie Bradshaw so aspires to. And I think that actually the the losers from that have overwhelmingly been women and the winners have been the men who can now get consequence free sex also it seems so it seems to them mm-hmm. and, and none of this would work without this idea that you raise of sexual enchantment this this changing of the view of what sex means mm-hmm. now i want to ask you about that and and how that sort of impacts this dominant view of very young very online feminists that sexual liberation for women is this right to pursue loveless sex as you've just described with the carrie bradshaw thing and the kind that's often found on dating apps now how does sexual enchantment work with that so I've borrowed this term from an American writer called Aaron Sabarium, and he borrows it from Max Weber, the famous sociologist, who talks about the disenchantment of the natural world that was part of the process of the Enlightenment, in that people used to believe that the natural world was infused with agency and spirits and magic, and then the post-Enlightenment, we understand it just to be sort of a consequence of... of physical forces without any agency behind them. And the natural world becomes much less special as a consequence of disenchantment. And Aaron suggests, and I think he's completely right, that the same thing has happened to sex post-sexual revolution, that you used to have this idea embedded in all religious, all religious systems everywhere in the world. You know, people have very particular ideas about very strongly held beliefs about sex. And you know, in Christianity, marriage is a sacrament and sex can only, you know, all of this stuff. And then what happens post-sexual revolution is that this, the surprisingly influential idea comes around that actually sex needn't have any specialness attached to it, that actually it could just be a social interaction like any other, you know, if people want to have the best meaning in it on a personal level, then they're welcome to, but that actually none of that stuff is innate. And in fact, that it possibly is a bad thing, you know, to consider sex to have some sort of special status. This is where you get campaigning ideas like sex work is work, like selling sex is just like working at McDonald's, it's just like working in Starbucks, it's just a service and it needn't have any more significance than any other type of service. And that if we do think that it has special significance, that's because we are being sort of hopelessly old fashioned and the project should be to try and to try and reduce that significance as much as we can. I actually don't think that anyone really believes in sexual disenchantment. I think it's mostly a rhetorical move Mm. because even people who, 
you know, will push really hard at, for instance, the idea that sex work is work. They don't actually tend to apply that consistently across the board. No. And you, you point out in the book, sexual harassment is the perfect example of that. Yeah. It is a very strange thing that often liberal feminists who will talk about sex work as if it were like working in McDonald's, don't take that attitude in their own workplaces at all and tend to be actually very sensitive to sexual harassment in the workplace. And the question that I ask in the book is, you know, if if sex is just a service, if it doesn't have any special significance, if it's just like shaking hands or making coffee or any of, you know, any of these other things that people commoditize all the time, why shouldn't, you know, a boss asking for a blowjob be permissible? If we just, in the same way that a boss asking for a coffee is permissible. I mean, people sometimes say to this, oh, but that's because blowjobs aren't in my job description. I say, well, (laughs) making coffee isn't in your job description either. I do all sorts of things that aren't in my job description every day. And we know that that, we know, you know, no one's going to get PTSD from making coffee. No one is going to get get pregnant or get a, a STD, you know, like is clearly the consequences long-term and most Mm. importantly, the emotional consequences long-term are completely different. I think the problem is though, that this, if you're trying to have a super rational view of the world, and if you're trying to let go of these terrible old fashioned ideas that are derived from religious ideas and whatever, then this fact that people don't actually regard sex as being like anything else. And actually people do have this uh, sort of intense specialness that they attach to this act. Mm. It's sort of inconvenient because it's like, it's viscerally felt, but very hard to rationalize or even articulate. I mean, similarly people, people in who, who experiment with polyamory, this is, this is often something people report that they try really hard to let go of all their hang-ups about monogamy and to be open-minded and to, you know, but find it really difficult. And you, I mean, any, any, you know, online platform you go on where people are talking about polyamory, you always come across people who are really, really struggling with jealousy and feel it really, really intensely, even if there might be a disconnect between their head and their head and their heart on it, you know, and that's because actually sexual disenchantment is, is an, is, is an ideal, I think a bad ideal that is really hard to achieve in practice. That makes so much sense. And I think, I mean, it's it's a good kind of segue to talk about now the consequences of this sort of thinking on families. So I know you had a baby while you were writing yes. this book. <laughs> One of the things I found so interesting is you pointed out that in the literature, in the feminist discourse, the motherhood is often ignored. And that motherhood itself smashes the illusions of individual freedom that are so central to liberalism. Can you talk about that tension a bit? Yeah, motherhood disrupts all. I mean, that's also true for liberal philosophy in general, that motherhood is just absent. Because if the unit that you're dealing with is is the individual, then it's very hard to fit mothers in particular, fathers too, but mothers in particular, into that model because actually when you're not only when you're pregnant but post-birth when you have a little baby you're not really an individual actually because you're so tightly bound to that to that other other being emotionally and physically in the sense I mean you know there are various technologies we have now which make it a bit easier for for mums and babies to be disconnected things like infant formula for instance but you know in in our ancestral history if that little baby doesn't have someone to breastfeed them and to and to 
attend to them every single moment, 24 seven, then they'll die. I mean, it is, is that, that, that relationship is absolutely essential to the continuance of the species. And so to think of that, my friend, Mary Harrington, who writes about Unheard in here in the UK, the point that she described, I think was so right when she, her, like, she kind of let go of some of her liberal ideas was when she had a, she had a baby and baby would cry in the middle of the night to be fed. And she thought, you know, according to the sort of individualist model, I could just choose to ignore that child. You know, I could, I could say, well, I'm protecting my bodily autonomy. You know, I don't fancy it. And that would be completely legitimate, but that's not at all how you, you know, your, your, your body just screams out when your baby cries, you feel it, you know, mm. the, this, this idea that you could just resist that and you could just be a kind of purely cerebral being, not, <laughs> not way down by other people is just absurd. And then sort of once you allow that and you think, okay, well, me and mothers and infants, that's kind of a, that's kind of a separate category. Then you're going to think, well, you know, mothers also need supporting during those vulnerable months because you can't work. You need someone else who can, who can feed you, who can, you know, heat the house, who can do all of this necessary stuff. And then you start thinking, okay, well, then you need someone else, <laughs> whoever it is, but, you know, fathers, other kin. And then you think, well, actually, if everyone is completely enmeshed with one another, you can't really think on, you can't really think of the individual as being the basic unit at all. I don't write about this in the book, actually, but the, my first degree was in anthropology. And there's this really interesting idea in anthropology of societies which recognize individuals so you know modern west and much more common are societies that recognize what's been described as individuals i.e we are the illustration of this which i always think is really good it's by uh, anthropologist called marilyn strathern who worked in papua new guinea and she said that if you ask a papua new guinean to draw a picture of themselves they won't just, what a, what a Westerner will normally do is they'll just draw, you know, head, like clothes, glasses maybe, but but basically nothing else, just the kind of figure of the human body. Whereas if you ask Papua New Guinean to do the same, they will draw his wife, his children, his house, some of his livestock, some of his other family, you know, because that's actually what a person is in the, individuals, in the individual model. And the idea of stripping all of that away, you'd be like, well, that's not, you know, like that's not me really that's not my that's not my whole self there because I'm defined by my relationships with other people and with other with other things but primarily with other people yeah that's super interesting you you also write about fatherhood here about how mm-hmm. crucial it is to the welfare of children this is something conservatives have been telling us for some time <laughs> what does the data say about how important fathers are you know present fathers for for women and children I can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but there, there, there is a most amazing correlation in the data between fatherlessness and all sorts of outcomes that we don't want, particularly for boys, imprisonment, and for girls, teenage motherhood, and for both sexes, much higher rates of mental illness and teenage misbehavior and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, some of it comes down to the fact that single parent families, overwhelmingly single mother families in reality are much poorer on average. I mean, just today in the UK, there were figures coming out that about half of single mother, single mother headed families in the UK are technically living in poverty. And that's partly to do with the fact that if you've got one income that has to cover everything, 
you are just going to be really, really stretched. There's no, you know, there's no two ways about it. So part of it is just straightforwardly material. And then part of it is to do with the fact that actually having two parents who are invested in raising the children and, and, and giving them everything that a child needs, you know, material, love, socialization, discipline, education, everything. It's just really, really hard for one person to do that on their own, no matter how no matter how valiant they are in their efforts, which often single mothers are, but it's just really, really difficult. And yeah, the, <laughs> this is, you know, conservatives have been pointing this out for some time. Although I'd say that one of the problems sometimes with the, the, the kind of bootstraps conservatism, let's say, is it 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 doesn't necessarily think about how to actually provide that support that's necessary to make it possible for families to flourish. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, the same is true on, often on the left as well. I feel like everyone's kind of, everyone's failing families from different directions. Yeah, absolutely. When we think about this desolation of the family, we know it disproportionately impacts the working class. I know you've talked about Rob Henderson before. He's been on my show mm. <laughs> with the luxury beliefs yeah. and actually is how I, I learned about your work. So how much blame for that state of affairs do we lay on the pill here? It's Rob Henderson's pointed this out as well, actually, that it is so perverse that a technology that allowed women for the first time to control their fertility in a reliable way and in a way that women could manage themselves, because historically contraception normally is like some form of condom, not very reliable, and also men are in charge of it, right? So the pill is transformative in that sense. You would never expect the, the invention of that kind of technology to lead to a rise in single motherhood. How weird is that? It's really <laughs> strange. <laughs> but that's exactly what happened. Like, uh-huh. you know, completely tracking. I mean, obviously there are other things that go on as well. I don't want to be completely technologically determinist about it, but the, the pill is this amazing technology shock that just suddenly arrives in the middle of the 20th century. And then there's, you know, there's a bit of a kind of staggered process where you have it made available to married women and then made available to unmarried women. And then you have the decriminalization of abortion not long afterwards, which acts as a backstop for when the contraception fails. So you have this kind of decades of, of, of legislation in the UK and the States and other places affecting its availability. But yeah, the, the, the phrase I use in the book is when motherhood became a biological choice for women, fatherhood became a social choice for men. Because it seems that what happened is that the shotgun marriage just ended basically, you know, within like 10 years or something of the pills introduction, it just wasn't, it was no longer really considered to have the function that it once did. But there was this widely held belief among, among the men who impregnated women who didn't want to be improved, you know, in unwanted pregnancies that, well, if you chose not to have the abortion, if you chose, you know, not to use contraception more effectively or whatever, you know, whatever narrative they choose, then it's not my problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the, the, one of the ways in which the pills had a really dire effect on women and children in the sense that it is, the thing is with the pill is it's actually not as reliable as people often think, right? With perfect use, it's like 99% reliable. There's still 1% there, but very strongly reliable, much more so than anything else in the past. But with typical use, it's more like 91%. It's quite easy to mess up by missing a pill. And that meant that when you had the old social norms around premarital sex or extramarital sex dissolve really quickly as a result of this new technology, because it seemed as if they didn't really have any purpose anymore, you 
end up with the like the absolute amount of extramarital sex that people are having goes up a lot which also means that you actually end up with a lot more unwanted pregnancies because you've still got that kind of nine percent failure rate and for whatever reason you'll always have women who don't want to have terminations and that's how you end up with this huge spike in single motherhood which no one would have expected but then this is the thing with human beings we're quite complicated (laughs) so you can't (laughs) always predict these things (laughs) One of the things I've thought about a lot is the lives of boomer feminists. So to sort of, you know, we were, I was raised with feminist ideology. I was certainly learned at university, but no one ever said, let's look at the lives of the women who were advocating these beliefs and see how they turned out. And so you wrote about the Canadian feminist uh, Shaluma Firestone um, and how her life ended. Talk to me a little bit about why you included that particular example in the book and and what happened with her. Yeah, so Firestone was a very amazingly intelligent and creative thinker um, who wrote Dialectic of Sex, which was one of the quite early second wave texts and hugely influential. It's, It's kind of Banana's book, if you read it now. It's dated quite badly, but it had a lot of you know, startling insights and and it was a real breath of fresh air for a lot of readers at the time. And she famously was really antinatalist or felt that there was something inherently oppressive about pregnancy and motherhood to women and that the only way of ever surmounting that oppression was to grow babies in boxes, you know, ectogenesis. And barring that, women should just refuse to reproduce. This is one of her most, her most, her most famous uh, statements. And she never became a mother herself. I mean, this was a common view among a lot of second waivers that motherhood in general was the problem. Not that mothers needed more support, not that men should step up, you know, but there was like a fundamental problem, which of course comes down to this liberal belief in the, the absolute autonomy of the individual. Motherhood like radically restricts your your freedom in every possible way. So a, um, a friend of mine who had a baby not long after me said that the only thing probably that restricts your freedom more is going to prison. <laughs> <laughs> and she's right. <laughs> it's like every single you know moment of the day you need to mm-hmm. be account- you need to be accounting for your ch- for your child in some way, and particularly in the early months. So you know, she, Firestone observed that, and she wasn't wrong. But her her solution was for women to just opt out. To just just go on strike essentially, which she did herself, and she 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 was a very troubled person in the way that really creative people often are, and suffered from really severe mental illness, and that she she died in really tragic circumstances, and that she was supported for a period by a group of friends, but they all kind of had fallings out, as is often the case with political groups mm-hmm. and by the end of her life she didn't really have anyone looking out for her and she ended up it was thought that she starved to death alone but the coroner couldn't be sure it was a really really miserable way for her to end her life and I mentioned that in the book as an example of the fact that actually when it comes down to it those kind of chosen relationships with friends or with uh, colleagues or admirers and whatever can't really replace family relationships because you have a you have an obligation to family in a way that you just never will with any other group of people you know the the blood is thicker than water observation is true and one of the things that families do is yes they control and yes they restrict your freedom 
and you know, yes, they are uh, sometimes as restrictive as going to prison, but they also provide support and stability, particularly to the most vulnerable members of the group. Babies being the obvious example, you know, babies are utterly, utterly hopeless and so need their families in order to survive, but also people at the other end of the life cycle. Mm-hmm. And liberal feminism doesn't really know what to do about that. Mm-hmm. Because in order to have those vulnerable people supported, they need other people doing the supporting. And often historically that has meant women doing the direct care work while men do other men do the providing work. But women are the ones who are actually at home wiping bums and feeding and you know doing all this stuff which is low status this is a problem right it's not it's not it is not considered to be high status in a in a culture that values values in the productive individual and what can you do about that except for opting out which is which has often been the solution in lesbian separatism being the most extreme example of that you know just just do not have relationships with men do not have relationships with children the problem is that kind of works when you're in the prime of life I mean, you you get through, you know, you depend on your own mother to come into the world, right? But then once you reach adulthood, you can kind of almost have this illusion that you are completely autonomous and that you don't need anybody else. I mean, of course, we all depend on the state and so on. And there are, there are you know, but we can you can have that illusion that you are completely autonomous. But almost all of us are going to end our lives in some state of dependency. And we'll normally we'll go through periods of dependency through ill health or you know, pregnancy or any of these other things. And I think actually an ideology that can't accommodate that and that says the the only thing you can do is just resist it and refuse to participate is just not a durable ideology. Mm-hmm. Before we close, I want to just spend a few moments on some of the solutions that you're offering here. <laughs> so <laughs> you talk about with men, this sort of dad mode versus cad mode, and that the you write that the task for practical-minded feminists is to deter men from CAD mode. And so there is this feminist case for monogamous marriage. Talk to me a little bit about that. So anthropologists talk about the puzzle of monogamous marriage, which is that the puzzle is why would a marriage system, which doesn't really suit the interests of high-status men, become as dominant as it has? Because normally what high-status men want to do is take on multiple wives. You know, men who are high in this trait, as we talked about earlier, of sociosexuality, they, they, want to, they want to be free to, you know, take on as many wives and have as many children and spread their seed as far as possible, you know. And in polygamous systems, they are allowed to do that. And most systems of marriage on the anthropological record have been polygamous. It's about 80%. Whereas the monogamous system bans those men from taking on more than one wife and so restricts them in that sense and the question for anthropologists is why on earth that would have caught on because it doesn't seem to suit the people in charge and the answer it seems is because the monogamous marriage system has all sorts of good effects at scale in that monogamous societies tend to be more productive economically they tend to be have lower rates of crime because one of the things you end up with with a polygamous system is that you have a minority of men who have multiple wives and then you have a larger group of men who have no wives and those unmarried men tend to be much more unstable getting into much more kind of dangerous situations and whatever and are therefore more likely to sort of generate 
crime and chaos in their societies. Polygamous societies also have higher rates of child abuse and domestic violence in the home because co-wives often don't get on and direct abuse at the co-wives' children who are not actually, you know, directly related to them. And in all, in all sorts of various ways, the monogamous system, even though it doesn't suit the interests of the, you know, the playboys, suits everyone else's interests. And I think that the, the feminist case for marriage comes both from recognising that, that there's like a larger picture at play, and that actually without a system of monogamous marriage, we have a tendency to be dragged back towards because the polygonous system seems to be kind of our natural state. You see this on dating apps, for instance, that you end up with the really attractive men getting loads and loads of dates and having multiple women on the go. You know, they can't actually marry multiple women because we don't permit that legally, but, you know, basically living that kind of polygonous lifestyle. And then lots of men getting no matches whatsoever, which seems to suggest that this is kind of like left to our own devices without any structure imposed. That tends to be where humans end up. Whereas what the monogamous system does is it is it is it imposes a restriction which actually produces collectively much better results. And also, you know, as we've discussed with the vulnerability of the mother infant dyad, you you need someone, at least one person. If you're a pregnant nursing mother, you need at least one person to help you and your baby survive. And to some extent, in a, a society with a welfare state, you can kind of get away without needing to have that person because the state will, a friend of mine described the state as being the backup husband, you know, so the state will feed you to some extent, house you to some extent, protect you from violence to some extent, but it doesn't do any of those things very well. And it doesn't provide you with you know, love and companionship and stability and the things that actually make for a a happy household and you know feminists throughout the ages have been completely right to identify all sorts of problems with the monogamous marriage system it does have all sorts of problems you know it doesn't always work out but they've never no one has ever actually succeeded in coming up with a better alternative because there have been experiments with various kinds of communal child rearing none of which have proved very durable, most of which have proved to actually be worse in all sorts of ways. We know that the polygamous system is worse in all sorts of ways. And I guess what I'm saying from a kind of realist feminist perspective is that what we've got to choose from is not imagined utopian options. What we've got to choose from is options that are actually available to us and have actually existed in other times and places. (laughs) And actually the, you know, monogamous marriage system has a lot to recommend it at an individual level and also at a collective level. Mm -hmm. And just lastly, Louise, I mean, you dedicated this book to women who learned the hard way. Mm. (laughs) At the end, you offer advice to younger women. Uh, One of the most interesting ones I thought was, especially women who are very high on the agreeable scale, to evaluate each potential sexual partner on whether he'd make a good father, even if you're not intending on having kids. If you look at your list of advice for for the young women who are coming behind us, of those items, what do you most want these young women to know right now? I think that agreeableness point is an important one. And that's one of the, I mentioned right at the top of this, that that there are these psychological differences between men and women, one of which is sociosexuality. Another one is agreeableness. It's a 
uh, one of the big five psychological traits. And there's a massive difference between men and women on average. Women are much, much more likely, more colloquially, it's called niceness, you know, but it, it basically putting other people's needs first. Mm. Is a th- there's a theory which is, seems quite convincing that it's to do with us being primed for motherhood. You have to be so agreeable with your baby, right? because babies are intensely disagreeable. <laughs> and so, you, so you're, you're kind of, and interestingly, it's one of these personality traits that only before puberty, boys and girls are the same. And then post-puberty, you see the difference emerging, which possibly suggests that it does have something to do with reproductive roles and that it would explain it. It's also something that the culture embeds because femininity is all about agreeableness. And so I think that you end up with a kind of, there's an existing difference and then you get like tugged by the culture because disagreeable women get scolded and agreeable women get praised and so on anyway so anyway this agreeableness thing is massive and I think it often often translates into quite dysfunctional sexual relationships because I I had a male friend like ask me this a while ago when I was while I was writing the book like what is going on with the fact that women we know that women can attract sexual partners much more easily than men can because men men are more up for it you know on average why are women putting up with this stuff when they could so easily go and find another partner? You know, why do women get seduced into bed by men who don't call? And then why aren't women being more assertive? And I think the answer is, is agreeableness. The fact that you don't, you know, so many women I've spoken to report this feeling of like not wanting to be a bitch, you know, wanting to be nice, wanting to, wanting to fit in, wanting to be cool. The cool girl famously, you know, from Gone Girl, that speech. And actually I think that being less agreeable and having more, finding the ability to stand up for yourself more and to think, hang on, is this actually in my best interest? You know, am I sleeping with this guy just to be nice? It sounds crazy, but actually, (laughs) you know, just like, just, just asking oneself that that question. And I think that that's why I framed it in the book as not thinking, is this guy good for me? Is he going to make a boyfriend or whatever? But trying to think, trying to like, you know, use that evolved adaptation to be agreeable on behalf of your children. Try and use that by thinking, would he make a good father to my children? Because actually, you know, women who will be such pushovers in every other part of life, when it comes to defending their children's interests, I, I, I speak from experience, suddenly find within themselves a capacity to be really assertive. So I think that, that yeah, kind of digging deep and finding that capacity. Well, I think this is a game changer book. I uh, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> I hope everyone reads it. It is really remarkable. And I so appreciate you making the time to come and talk about it today. Thank you so much. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 